Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Can I say a very warm word of welcome to the Institute for Government this evening, uh, an event we're doing in partnership with Editorial Intelligence on the theme of business and politics. And I was keen to get to, actually, two not only very distinguished participants in that debate, but also two very old friends of mine here this evening, uh, Richard Lambert and Alistair Darling, to lead the discussion. It's precisely 20 years ago I started on the FT, recruited by Richard Lambert, and I was Alistair's successor as Transport Secretary. I was his successor, but I think four or five, but there were only three years in between us. <laughs> something about the last government, but he uh, remained, I'm glad to say, an equal length of time as, as Chancellor. Uh, they both were head of their respective organisations the CBI and the Treasury, in a period of uh, almost unprecedented, almost unprecedented turbulence in, uh, uh, in modern politics and, and the state of the modern economy. Uh, and their relations, therefore, I think are, are highly uh, significant to understanding the state of relations at large between business and politics. But I, I was going to encourage them to think more widely. And Richard, I know, since he... Uh, ceased to be Director General of the, BB, of the uh, CBI has been thinking widely about issues to do with business and the state of capitalism. He's been doing so from Venice, where he's been for a few months, which I think is very conducive to thinking of the future of civilization. in my experience. It's nowhere better than looking at the glories of civilization past to think of the glories of civilization in the future. Now, Alistair has just finished a book on uh, his favourite subject, the banking crisis and uh, the events uh, surrounding... Uh, uh, the crisis in that period, and therefore his, so all these issues are very fresh on his mind too. He's also, I should tell you, because this is a theme for, for, for you to contribute to later in the discussion, looking for a title for the book. He's got a book finished but no title. So uh, I'm up for offers at the end of our discussion this evening on good titles, and I think his, his publisher may be offering a special reward for, for, the, for the best one. Um, Richard, over to you. Thank you very much. Well, uh, what I thought I would start off with um, was by saying that in my kind of embarrassingly long working life, um, I've lived through two different kinds of uh, capitalism, very different kinds of capitalism. Uh, both of them uh, collapsed under their own weight. And I think we are now moving into a different sort of economy and a different sort of um, uh, business and uh, governance world. And I think it would be interesting perhaps to discuss uh, what shape that might take and how what lessons we might learn from the last uh, decades uh, to help that work. And I think for me, the central question, or a central question at any rate, is about what is the right role for the state in a dynamic modern economy? And within that as a sort of subset, um, what's the right role between uh, government and business and the private sector in, uh, in this new world? So I, I, I left uh, university 200 years ago and I started at the FT straight away in the late 60s. <coughs> and in the late 60s it was taken for granted uh, by uh, political leaders of all parties and by uh, business bosses that the state had a dominant role to play in the functioning of uh, the economy. Very large sections of the economy had always been state-owned, whether it was, um, uh, you know, uh, telecoms or airlines or or recently state-owned, like railways, docks, and other large sections, the commanding heights, the things that really mattered to a modern economy, like shipbuilding and steel, uh, and um, also, of course, um, aerospace were nationalized, privatized, and renationalized again. And um, 
industrial barons, the most successful ones, made most of their success out of a fairly cosy relationship with the state. Uh, and the most terrifying of them all was uh, Arnold Weinstock of GEC. Uh, and he made a very substantial uh, business out of his relationships with the state on telecoms, on aerospace, uh, and on defense. And attempts to compete in uh, market space of consumer durables or uh, medical equipment were total failures. Uh, but the business was built in that way. Uh, it was a world where there was a clear three-way relationships between government uh, business, often represented by the CBI, and the trade unions, the union bosses. And decisions were taken by government in every single sector of the economy, often for, more for political than for uh, economic uh, reasons. So the government would set the steel price, uh, or it would think what the right price for a railway ticket would be, and it would decide that the middle of Scotland, as far away from a port as it was possible to be in Scotland, was a good place to build an integrated steel plant. Uh, and it also made, I think, what must count as perhaps two of the worst um, economic decisions since the Second War, which was to develop the advanced gas cool reactors, the nuclear reactors system that the UK uniquely chose in the world, and Concord, I would put up there as a, a stinker, uh, both of which were done with the active collaboration of business, uh, who did very nicely out of it over, over the short term. Um, over the following years, um, the economy got more and more inefficient, <coughs> more sclerotic, which is a word that was used a lot in those days, and I haven't heard it for decades, so I'll just say it again because it's kind of nostalgic. Um, and we had in the 70s, uh, nobody in this room under the age of 90 will believe this, we had dividend controls and prices controls and incomes controls. And I can remember a fantastic story in the... Uh, FT, which we were so excited by, was we discovered, because in this strange world with different incentives, uh, that people in the city were leasing their suits uh, from their companies to get around income controls. And the best story of all was we, we found out that BOC, I think it was BOC, was leasing its executives their dining room tables. Fantastic. <laughs> anyway, along comes um, the uh, Thatcher-Reagan revolution, and all this, all this gets uh, swept away. We go through a period of massive transfer of resources from the public to the private sector, massive deregulation, especially in the financial sector, um, open markets, everything for sale pretty much, and the breaking of trade union power, at least in the private sector. And uh, it's, it's, in, uh, it's interesting to me that in my five years at, at the CBI, uh, I never had anything other than a friendly social discussion with Brendan Barber, and I never had any discussion with any of his colleagues, which is so unlike uh, the world of the 60s and 70s is to be unbelievable. Corporatism died, the CBI went down from eight floors of center point to one and a half floors, and uh, uh, union uh, power in the private sector I think is now 15, 16% membership in the private sector. So Thatcher reset the rules in a way, and uh, the um, ideas which she uh, initiated were scarcely changed, scarcely trimmed by the, um, in the, by the, the uh, after 1997 when the new administration came in. And by the turn of the century, I think it came to be believed pretty much that any government interference of any kind in the workings of a market economy were likely to be damaging. And the most extreme example of that view, perhaps, was held by Alan Greenspan, uh, who took the view uh, that uh, bankers uh, would, their own, the, own, the self-interest of bankers would ensure that they never did uh, anything that would threaten the system and that, therefore, to attempt to regulate them uh, would be seriously counterproductive. So he didn't. 
I've got a, I've got a, a really s a stark memory, which I'll share you with you, when I just after I joined the CDI in uh, 2006, going to a meeting of top business bosses and permanent secretaries, and there were about 12 on either side, and it was exquisitely embarrassing, uh, because... Um, uh, I remember Gus O'Donnell, who was sort of sitting there, kind of rolling his eyes in horror and mouthing in a way he thought nobody could see, never again, never again. Uh, and it was characterised really by ignorance and a degree of arrogance on both sides. The business bosses had no idea what the permanent secretary did and couldn't understand why they couldn't uh, achieve much better outcomes with a fraction of the uh, resources uh, to do it. I can remember one civil servant saying frostily, well, you've got to understand that uh, it's quite difficult to uh, treat uh, guests of Her Majesty's prison in cu as customers in any normal sense of the word. Uh, and the civil servants, of course, got crosser and crosser and more and more snooty. And it was just a ghastly occasion. Um, fast forward a few years, and the, just before I left, at the end of last year, there was a similar meeting, and it was very different in tone. Um, uh, the business bosses were much more humble and uh, courteous, and all the permanent secretaries were desperately asking the bosses, you know, how could they find ways of saving uh, resources, cutting uh, things, what, what could business teach them about running, uh, doing, as we uh, learned to say, uh, more with less. So I think that um, uh, capitalism is now evolving again. Uh, we've learned that uh, markets failed. Uh, uh, we've known, learned, and not just, by the way, in financial markets, uh, Nick Stern rightly said, didn't he, that uh, climate change was the biggest market failure in modern history, and I think that's the case. Uh, we've learned that the efficient market theory is bunkum, pretty much, uh, and uh, we've, uh, we've learned that um, the corporates need government when, not just when trouble comes, but especially when trouble comes. And after uh, a few years in which we've seen General Motors nationalised and the Labour government saving the banking system, I think we have to recast in some way uh, our views of how uh, a market economy works. I think that I, 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 I'd like to quote a line from Anatole Kolecki, who in his, I think it's a rather good book, um, Capitalism 4.0, um, basically his argument there is um, that a market economy, we've learned, can only exist with a competent and active government. Uh, it's obvious now uh, that to recover our economy and to get back into a, a, a more stable and sustainable position, we need sound regulation. Uh, 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 we need sound regulation in obvious areas. I mean, clearly the banking system is the most obvious just now. Uh, we need to arrive at a point uh, where the banks are no longer dependent on the taxpayers but are in a position to extend credit uh, to power economic growth. Uh, we need sound regulation, just to name one other example, in the energy markets, and we've seen this week uh, moves uh, hope in, in, in that direction. Um, the UK, for the first time it's in industrial history, is no longer energy independent. Uh, we need the kind of regulatory structure that will drive and create a uh, diverse supply of low-carbon energy at competitive prices for the UK, and we may not succeed in that, and if we don't, Basically, we're all in trouble, and government is needed to make that work. So what this all adds up to, I think, is uh, a different sort of relationship between business and government, a, a, a closer and better informed relationship at any rate to help so that these big regulatory discussions can be done in an articulate and intelligent way. And I think there are 
some problems there. I think it's quite a long way from that in some respect. I think, for example, that we have a whole cohort of business leaders who have really been brought up to think that governments get in the way and are a pain in the neck. Um, I think, to their credit, um, a lot of people are now thinking differently and they're wanting to find out how government works. And actually, uh, there's a whole breed of um, consultants just sort of setting up, I discovered the other day, who are doing that. They're, 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 the, the, the tricks they're selling these days is how to, how to, to telling uh, their, customer, their clients how government works and what they need to do uh, to understand what's coming ahead. And the government itself has um, a lot of, I think, thinking to do about how it understands and works with what's going on. Obviously, massive reforms in the financial sector, but also elsewhere. I mean, I think, you know, if you think about the Department of Business, um, it's a pretty odd place, isn't it? I mean, that we have a Department of Business of which two-thirds or um, uh, four-fifths, anyway, of its budget is about higher education and st student loans. Uh, and we have the, uh, perhaps the single thing which is of most importance to business, which right now, which is energy, I think, is in a department which is more concerned with environmental than economic matters. And we don't have... Uh, we have very... Uh, um, competent and, and highly um, impressive bureaucrats working on the case, but they don't spend their lives thinking about it. They get moved on from department to department or speciality to speciality. You know, there's people in Paris who spend their whole working life thinking about Airbus. Um, and I think that a role for the Institute of Government is to, th well, I mean, perhaps it's, yeah, I think it is a role for you, is um, you know, what, what can we learn from the uh, German Ministry of Economics? And what can we learn from the way that's opposite number of Paris <coughs> performs and acts to help government here under, you know, get into a relationship where it understands and takes a longer view of how the economy works. Because obviously the characteristics of our economy in the next 10 years are going to be very different from the last 10 years. It's going to be more volatile. I think there's going to be much slower growth. We won't expect uh, growth rates uh, to be sustained at the level that they have over the last 10 or 15 years. Can't happen, I don't think. Uh, governments will be retrenching, but government will also have to be taking a more active role in economic management. And I think there are some really big questions, which I'm sure Alistair is going to answer in three seconds when I pop them to him, uh, about the way the private sector works, about the ownership structure of the private sector. Um, the, we live in a world where uh, companies are owned by investors who take increasingly short-term time horizons and which are uh, open to... Uh, uh, instant decisions. We, uh, our economy needs more equity and less debt in it. Uh, my favourite statistic is last year the UK corporate sector net of share buybacks and uh, acquisition, uh, purchases raised 1.3 billion of new equity, the whole of the UK corporate sector, and that's exactly what Nat Rothschild raised in three weeks to fund a um, vehicle uh, with no assets, no business plan, um, about a lot of fun ahead of it, uh, or something. And, the, and that then that leads down to the final uh, question, which it may be something we want to discuss tonight, is whether we need some kind of industrial policy in this country, and if so, what? Uh, well, there's some very big questions there about the whole future of politics <laughs> and, and, and the universe. <coughs> Alistair, feel free to uh, answer as many of those points as you, as you would like to. But give us a sense, though, to begin with, because it's important to get back to the, you know, this great crisis, which is uh, one of the defining moments of, uh, of modern Britain and will uh, live with you forever. What did it feel like having the whole future 
of uh, capitalism in your hands for a few weeks. Well, it's very interesting, actually. <laughs> uh, I'll come back to that in a moment, if I may. I should just start by the last thing that, um, uh, that uh, you said there, when you said, should we have an industrial policy? And it is remarkable, actually, that the question is now being asked, uh, because maybe it's a question that we should have asked in this country 20 or 30 years ago. For 18 months, I was the Secretary of State for Trade and Industry, in between four very happy years in the Department of Transport, uh, where I just failed to break Ernest Marple's record as Secretary of State for Transport, set in the 1950s by about three weeks, I think it was, and before I went to the Treasury. And I remember the first day I was sitting in the DTI in Victoria Street there and looking at the splendid view the office has over Westminster Abbey and you know, across the Thames, and I thought, what the hell am I doing here? What is this department for? Because it was perfectly obvious what it was for uh, at a time when the state owned as you were saying, uh, you know, large swathes of British industry, the DTI was the department that managed them. And, uh, you know, I, I too remember, although I was at school at the time, uh, <laughs> reading, reading uh, uh, of the days in which the British government, and successive British governments, not just Labour, sure. the Tory governments as well, uh, thought they could decide almost Soviet-like, how large each sector of the economy was. And if you look particularly, you know, Tony Benn was probably the most articulate uh, um, advocate of this in, in his plans that he drew up in the late 1970s. He thought the state could actually so organize things that we would have a balanced economy, we would decide what would be produced, whether it was motorbikes, concords, or, or, or whatever. Uh, and of course, at the end of the uh, 1970s, that whole uh, approach of government, where government probably did too much and that it was involved in things where it can't actually take commercial decisions, where it can't make um, the sort of decisions that y you need in order to run a modern economy. We went, then f went from that to almost the opposite extreme, where at times the state seemed utterly indifferent to what happened in the British economy. And when, over the last what, couple of years or so, people have been talking about the need for us having a balanced economy, by which people mean in shorthand less dependence on the financial services industry and more dependence on something else, the real problem is that we gave a lot of this away 30 years ago. Uh, the Germans didn't. Uh, the French didn't to the same extent as us because they recognized uh, that there was uh, a national interest, if you like, in ensuring uh, that you had a, a mix in the economy and that if you were good at something uh, you should perhaps capitalize on that and that's an important point because what we now see is the remorseless shift in the center of economic gravity from the west to the east and to the south we really do need to ask ourselves now what are we still good at what are we going to compete in uh, in the next 20 or 30 years uh, which is why unpopular it may be in some quarters I think for us to give up in the financial services industry would be something of a mistake. When someone else tells me how we're going to employ a million people and how we're going to uh, replace something like 10% of our GDP, uh, then that's fine. Then we can discuss what we do with it. That's not to say you don't have to toughen its regulation and make all the reforms that are necessary. But it is worth reflecting on the fact that it is something that we are still uh, quite good at. There's a lot of the sector that didn't get in, into trouble. Uh, but also, of course, we do need to ask ourselves the question, how do we build up other areas of the economy where we still have some advantage and uh, which we can exploit uh, for, for the advantage of the country as a whole?
But, you know, you're absolutely right. We did go through this phase of the state probably doing too much to a position where the state uh, has done uh, too little. And I was also reflecting on, on when I was thinking about uh, this evening's uh, discussion, uh, the attitude between uh, politicians and businesses. And as a politician, although I could claim to be a businessman, since after all, until May of last year, I did own four banks, which is more than, <laughs> more than many, many people in this room have uh, done. I used to, when I fly home to Edinburgh, or you, if you've ever flown into Edinburgh and you drive in the city centre, you pass the rather splendid headquarters of RBS, uh, which I remember... Fred's Folly. Uh, in Fred's, uh, it's a remarkable place if you care to visit it, and I used to think that's mine. <laughs> <laughs> Though I never did get an office there, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, the, the, uh, there, is an, there is an ambivalence on the part of British industry, because uh, 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 Richard is right that if you talk to many business people, their attitude, first and foremost, is we don't need government, it's getting in our way. But also, most people realise they do actually need the business, business, uh, government uh, to help them or to do things that will make their businesses better. And that ambivalence is something that they've got vis-à-vis uh, -vis our relationships, but it's also something that I think within uh, you know, both major political uh, parties there does need to be some rethinking. It's interesting that the present government... Uh, which certainly in opposition gave the impression that it was more of the Thatcherite approach that governments can't uh, dictate the shape of industry and that an industrial policy was, you know, a regressive sort of thing to have. Uh, towards the end of last year, when it was clear that growth wasn't going to pick up in quite the way that they had hoped, that suddenly they needed a policy for growth uh, and industrial policy. Now, I do, I do think that government has a role, not going back to running industries, and you know, I don't think, for example, that the state uh, should hold on to those banks that it acquired out of necessity. But I do think that just as if you go to a developed country, nobody, either in government or business, will query the fact that business and government do actually work quite well together in ensuring that you do get the industrial development you want. There are some things only the state can do. Richard mentioned energy, for example. Without the state providing the, uh, the planning, providing the right uh, regulatory regime, there is no way, for example... Uh, that we're going to replace uh, the current fleet of nuclear power stations. Without an appropriate financial regime, we're not going to get the renewable energy uh, that, that we want. Equally, in relation to the banking sector, despite uh, its, its worst excesses, unless the state steps in and has a suitable regulatory framework, it is going to get into difficulty again, and that won't do it or anybody else any good. And similarly, of course, there's a supply side, things like education and so on, where only the state can essentially provide uh, the, uh, the, the, the means by which we get highly educated uh, uh, people coming into the labour market. So the state does have a role. The bigger question is, of course, what else should the state be doing? Now, I suppose there has to be a, you know, the, the, one of the, 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 quite recently this issue came up with uh, the question of um, the uh, rail procurement, which you will remember, the contract to, to replace uh, the trains on Thameslink. Now, there has to be a happy balance between uh, the relationship in, uh, that they have in France, for example, where if you go and visit the French Ministry of Transport, it's remarkable how SNCF appear to have an office just down, further down the corridor. <laughs> And that if you speak to any French businessman, they won't go too far away from you know, where their government is. There has to be a happy balance between that and the position that we've got ourselves into. Uh, and you know, I, when I say we, I include at the last Labour government, because I think the new Labour dominant philosophy was very much, we'll set the macro climate, the rest of it will take care of itself. 
Uh, it was only towards the end of the government uh, that I think there was a recognition that government did have to do more if we are going to compete uh, with uh, countries that are likely to become stronger in the future. So I think what I would say is this, that we do have an ambivalent uh, relationship at the moment between government and business, in politics and business, and you know that ambivalence, certainly speaking from the political classes, if you like, is something which I think we need to resolve fairly quickly, because other countries are not standing still. Uh, we have a huge repair job to do in our economy, uh, and I think that government has a far greater role, not just in fostering research and development, but in, as, especially as we rebuild our economy and rebuild the infrastructure in our economy, whether it's transport or energy, and so on and then we've got to make sure that some of the benefit of that investment actually flows into this country and that we gain something from it. It's not protectionism, which I'm dead against, restraints on trade or anything like that, but I do think we have to ask ourselves what can a government do <coughs> at the beginning of the 21st century that makes sure that we can capitalise on the strengths that we've got, we don't give away the competitive advantage we have, uh, but at the same time we can also, uh, with appropriate targeted interventions, make sure that we can build up the other sectors of our economy without which it will be very, very difficult to compete in the future. Thanks, Alistair. Well, let me kick-start the discussion, and then I'll open it to the floor. We have lots of people who have been engaged in this from uh, various different perspectives uh, in the audience. Can I just ask you both, what view, Alistair, did you form owning your banks and both as uh, trade and industry and uh, as Chancellor of the quality and character of our business leaders in this country? What, what view did you form of them as a group? And, uh, Richard, what view did you form of uh, our political leaders taken at large as a group? Do you think uh, that we, uh, in both cases, uh, get what we deserve, or could we do rather better? And Richard, well, do you want to go first? <laughs> no, I think Alistair does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the answer to that must be, and I'm sure Richard said, if you look at politicians or businesses, it's mixed. Uh, you know, some very, very good people in business. Uh, one of the things actually that I, I find striking, and Richard may want to comment on, is that it's remarkable sometimes how you do meet chief, chief executives who are remarkably ignorant of the way that government works. And the, what, some, what I think marks out, you know, especially in the big companies, a good CEO from one that's not so good is the ones that can see the bigger picture. And this was striking during the banking crisis that, that there were a number of CEOs whose banks were not in immediate trouble, I and mean, they were all collectively in trouble, but could actually see. Uh, that something needed to be done and they might have to play a part in it and actually without the state there was no way they were going to survive. Uh, there were others who were CEOs of banks which on any view looked to be heading for the rocks who were remarkably hostile to the state without which uh, there was, they were going to be even in, in even deeper trouble. So I think it's mixed and just you know before you get, say it and get my retaliation first you know frankly if you go to any political party or any politicians there's some good there are not some not so good. Um, but I, and there's one other, you know, I think we shouldn't get, you know, obviously we talk about CEOs and, you know, the boardrooms and the rest of it. Um, I just make two observations. One is, certainly my banking experience, the quality of non-execs in the banks left a hell of a lot to be desired, especially in RBS is a case in the point. What on earth were they doing? You know, why did they not question the takeover of ABN? Why weren't they asking questions about what was going on in that bank? And the other lot that need to be held to account are the institutional investors in particular, who you know, were quite happy to take an interest in their institutions from a distance, uh, but they were not taking the sort of interest that you'd expect as owners. And this maybe touches on something also Richard said, that I think the, there is a, 
you know, you know they are legal owners, but a proper owner takes a long-term interest in what their business is doing. I'm afraid far too many owners in this country, most of them are institutional investors, simply don't do that. Uh, there are a few honourable exceptions, but most of them just don't do it. And just looking around now, I don't think they've learned very much, despite what's happened in the last two or three years. I think, uh, just to pick up on that and to answer your question, I mean, I think one of the other complications is that if you look at the sort of FTSE 100 now, uh, roughly speaking, less than half their shares are actually owned by UK institutional owners. So their owners have no, um, uh, uh, feel no constraints, from, as it were, from a, from a national perspective. Yeah. Cadbury is a case in point. Cadbury's Cadbury is a chocolate, as in not yeah. party. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I see your question. Well, I'm afraid the answer, rather cornily, is, is the mixed one. I mean, I thought, I, my, I felt that uh, my job at the CBI was uh, not to tell them what to do, but to tell them, make sure that when they made a decision, they knew what the business lot would think about it, and it was up to them to decide what they wanted to do. And, and you could tell that some people were quite interested in that, and some were not interested at all. And so that's that's how one would judge that. Um, and I think that. The, on, the few, on the occasions when business people, I thought, got justifiably really angry or upset was when it wasn't so much about um, uh, political decisions which personally they wouldn't like, like the 50p tax or whatever. It was more when it seemed that there was an inconsistency, that a, that a course had been set uh, and people had made their plans on that, on, based on the understanding that that course was going to be the course. And then without uh, batting an eyelid, the course was changed. And that's not just applies to your government, it applies, applies to other governments. That's what really cheeses people off, you know, that they, they, the, the, the assumptions on which they've uh, made their plans suddenly turn out to be um, false. Well, who'd like to, to kick off? I, I see Peter Riddle at the back. I see, uh, and that's bringing John Burt, who I see a few rows down, who's uh, seen this from all sides too. Uh, and then the, the lady three rows back. Peter, do you want to kick off? Peter Riddle, Institute for Government. Um, can I something to Richard, um, a former colleague over several decades, um, is the, the, the interesting thing he raised at the beginning of the industrialists up to the Thatcher era, and it always struck me as a slight paradox. Those who parade themselves as most pro-free market are most upset when the state says um, we want to introduce competition. I remember on Arnold Weinstock how upset he got when mm. opening up a competition for supply of telephone exchanges. Yes. Um, having a happy conversation with him. And you, you undoubtedly had the same, and like a different hat on his I was hiding under my desk, probably. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, he's anger at the Thatcher government for possibly um, ensuring that, that GC wouldn't get them. Yes. And the, equally now, the the the... In some sectors, the people who parade most of the virtues of independence and so on are those who are actually most dependent on the state in that r role. And in a sense, Adam Smith was right in, in that way, um, that for, for, for any era, and also the lag, the point you made earlier, that there was an enormous lag. In the 80s, for example, you've got Lord King, who wanted to preserve British Airways' monopoly, yet was parading himself as a great champion of, of Thatcher and independence, uh, Marshall on everything on electricity, bitterly resenting Peter Walker, challenging the monopoly there, and Arnold Whitelock. And similarly, now, the greatest reluctance for opening up a lot of the financial sector comes from bank um, heads who are now dependent on the state. I mean, dependent on Alice to his chief shareholder. And if I can suggest to him a title for his book, The Loneliness of the Chancellor. My, uh, my, my first job out of university 
writing speeches for Sir Dennis Rook, who was the great ogre, who was the chairman of British Gas, and he had two maxims. One was that all politicians were awful, and uh, they knew nothing about business. Uh, they also, he was an engineer as well, which was a big plus, and uh, they knew nothing about engineering, and the whole country was going to the dogs. Uh, but the other thing was it was essential that British Gas was privatised as a monopoly without any competition, and uh, he would pull every political string he could uh, pull, and that was quite a few, to see uh, that, it, that there was no competition, it was privatised as a single entity, and he succeeded. Very much a, 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 a story of the 80s. Yeah. John, John I, I, can I answer? Can I have a quick... Or do you want to... Shall I take a okay. few? Yeah. John. I think that there are many dimensions. These are, these are mighty subjects. Well, I'd observe a number of things. One, when I was in government, um, I led the study on um, the economy of London and the South East. Um, and indeed, it wasn't just about the economy, it was about the whole of London. One of the things that came out of, out of that was that the London economy was as productive, was the most productive economy in Europe, was as productive as the American it was productive on the back of three industries, not one. Financial services wasn't even the most important. Business services is the lead in London. Then the creative industries, broadly defined, advertising and so on. Uh, and then the financial sector. So I think one, one question for us is how come it worked one part of the system is a big success story, but how come we haven't been able to syndicate that success um, across the whole of the country. And I, I suspect the reasons for that are many, and I did not study that, many complex and, and deep. Um, the legacy of the Industrial Revolution. I come from Liverpool. Poor, very poor urban development. Um, uh, our failure to maintain attractive environments for business to operate. And beyond that, I think there are there, you know, there are many, many issues. I agree with Alistair. I think the quality of, I think, the way in which our public companies are managed in the UK is very weak indeed and leads to a lot of value, unnecessary value destruction. But if we're looking for roles for government, I'd look at areas like computer science. I'm, uh, I'm heavily involved in the private sector myself now. I'm chairman of PayPal Europe. It is notable that um, there is no European player. It's not just no UK player. There is no um, European player that's emerged uh, in the way that many institutions have emerged from Silicon Valley uh, over the last uh, 10 years. And that, I think, has been a failure of our government because over a very governments over a long period of time, we simply have not got the computer science um, uh, uh, weight uh, that, um, that you find in California. So I, I suspect we talked till midnight and we will find there are many, many factors on the line that Alistair uh, and uh, Richard have identified. Uh, the gloomy prognosis there. The, the, la <laughs> the lady one yes. row ahead. Thank you. I'm Margaret Cole, and I'm a managing director at the Financial Services Authority. And given my role, I'm going to studiously avoid any political comments. Um, but I'd just like to make a comment and ask a question for both of you, please. Um, and the comment is, is that there's been many, much analysis of the causes of the crisis, 
And I've been struck, and it, it struck me this evening uh, with comments about <coughs> corporate governance and the role of boards and those sort of things. There's not been much analysis of the failure of leadership of organizations through the crisis, and that has struck me uh, with all the detailed analysis of subprime and all the other things. But, you know, there is an e a leadership issue here, whether attributable to the CEOs, boards, or whatever. That's, that's a comment you may wish to say something about that. Um, and my question uh, to both Richard and Alistair is, um, which I hope is not a very political or difficult question uh, for me to put anyway, on the subject of the, the things that we are good at and the competitiveness of our financial services industry, is that an appropriate thing for the regulator of the financial services industry to take into account? Um, Richard, do you, want, do you want to kick off? Yeah. Um, well, to, um, to go to Peter's opening uh, salvo, uh, um, I think that one of the reasons we have a relatively weak manufacturing sector compared to Germany is not actually so much to do with recent policy errors. I think you can go further back and you can see that in the pre-war period we had a very poor competition structure in this country. We did not have a strong competition agency as they did in Germany. I think one of the Mr. Brown's um, good uh, legacies as Chancellor was he toughened up uh, competition policy uh, significantly in this country. Uh, there were, I mean, we were essentially, I mean, GC and others were essentially castleized uh, industries. And I think, as our former boss, Jeff Owen, argued well in his book, uh, we also, uh, our industries relied very heavily on um, the empire. As, uh, so firms were, you know, when within the European Union, um, uh, you know, firms in Germany and France were competing vigorously against each other, we were still. Uh, supplying clunkers to Nigeria. That's what we did. And they very happily bought them for a bit and then they bought other ones. And so I think there's a sort of long, there's a longer tail saga to all this. And you can, you know, if you think of the, the, um, the sectors, you know, that uh, I, I guess in, in the 1970s we probably had 800,000 people working in the textile industry in this country still in, in um, completely hopeless environments. Whereas uh, the Italians, having been through competition, had decided the way to develop a textile industry was not to try and compete uh, with uh, the emerging economies, but to build, uh, to, to create uh, sophisticated textiles that could be sold at a, at, a, at a good price. So I think there's a long, it's, it's not a recent problem, I think, that's what I'm saying. I'm much more cheerful than John is about um, uh, the economy. It's clear that there are huge regional differences in this, in this country. And I think I read that the value added in London is 60 times that in South Wales. I think, and we certainly have the biggest regional differentials, I think I'm saying, of any, um, yeah, but, I, but, but, then, but then, you know, it's not, it's not right to say we don't have computer science in this country. We have some fantastic companies, I mean, Autonomy, Arm, a few others, that are serious players in the world, and we, they're pretty good companies, they're very good companies, and they're big companies as well. So I'm sort of more optimistic. Now we've got, um, you know, in our, in our great universities, which are, uh, pound for pound, if you adjust for population sizes, are uh, uh, more successful than their U.S. counterparts. We have more world-class universities than any other country in the world, if you allow for the size of our economy. Uh, we've got lots of stuff going for us. Uh, what we haven't done, I agree, is, and I, but I don't think this is to do with the fact that we're stupid, is we have not managed to turn, uh, we have not managed to create great, great, big world-class businesses. 
out of promising material. And that has something to do, I think, with the size of our economy. It has something to do with the incentives that people have to sell out early um, uh, and, that, uh, and that kind of thing. But I, I, you know, I think we still have a strong science base and, and, and I mean, a real capacity to, to compete in, in this world. And as you mentioned, creative industries, that's, that's another, another one as well. I do think uh, leadership was a big um, deal in, in the crash and not just in the private sector. Um, you know, I think that if one, um, if one looks uh, across the piece and not homing in on any particular area, there were, there were problems in the regulatory structure, uh, there were problems in the governance of, in, 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 pol in political, uh, political mistakes were made. Um, and I think that um, it's, in a sense it's too easy to say the bankers were hopeless. I mean, one way or another, uh, I guess we were all complicit. Even, you know, I could borrow money at the same rate as the US Treasury. Something must have been wrong, um, but, uh, but, but we pressed ahead. Um, uh, regulation and competition. Should the regulator be concerned with competition? I think I sort of have a slightly old-fashioned view, which I remember the, I got people at the SEC used to say. They don't do it anymore because they're all softies these days. But um, what they used to say was, if we regulate this market really well, uh, we will be the place in the world where people want to do business. Um, uh, and uh, the, the, the best, um, uh, the, the, the most powerful motive for success, for if, if you're a regulator, <coughs> it's a safe and transparent and open place to, to do business. And I think that's, that's pretty much what I think. Thanks. Uh, as I'm not sure how far you want to talk about the concept of leadership. You can restrict yourself to regulation and competition if you... Uh... Why can't you do leadership? You're very well... <laughs> um, well, let me, let, well let, let, let me start there. Uh, I, I think potentially there is a conflict between a regulator and someone who is there to promote the industry uh, as, you know, the, the British financial services industry. Um, on the other hand, you can't completely divorce the competitive question. There's a very live issue just now, as you know, with the Vickers report on ring fencing. You know, if we ring fence and we require our banks to hold a higher percentage of uh, capital than anybody else, uh, then what's going to happen? Uh, you know, slowly but surely, people will just take their business, you know, somewhere else. Uh, and in any event, the last three years have surely shown uh, that you can, of course, you must regulate in your own home territory. But that's completely ineffective if the adjacent jurisdictions aren't doing the same thing. And, you know, we are about, I'm afraid, to be visited with this again very shortly when we've got the European stress test coming up, uh, which I suspect will show that a lot of European banks are sitting on rather more uh, bonds than people think that have been issued by countries that are in trouble or are thought to be about to be in trouble. And unless the European Union uh, governments act to damn sight more quickly than been, than been doing the last couple of years and recapitalise their banks uh, where it's necessary, we run the risk of exactly the same problem happening again as happened three years ago. Uh, so I, I think that I would say the, re the regulator's primary job is to make sure that the industry is properly regulated to whatever standards we set. But of course, you, you do have to have regard to what is happening over the fence, if you like. You know, that's a fact of life. But the promotion of uh, the British financial services uh, industry is something that's probably better done and there are other people who can do it. And indeed, one of the best, you know, the best promotion is if you get the companies themselves that are seen to be, you know, uh, you know excellent in their own field. So I think, I think that would be the answer to that. And you know, when it comes to that failure, you know, it, it, it wasn't just the banks, it was the regulators, it was 
you know, governments as well, you know, the, uh, you know right, across, right across the world. Uh, just developing that theme, it comes on to John Burt's point, uh, you know, it's not just in the southeast. Uh, you know, the, the, we are predominantly a service sector economy now. Uh, and indeed, you know, sometimes to my chagrin when I was looking at, uh, you know, growth figures, uh, you know, when we were in government, you know, what the service sector does mat matters an awful lot. Uh, you'd be amazed that the failure of people to go out to buy their Christmas dinner can have a devastating effect on your growth figures as an exporter. Uh, and, you know, in an economy that was perhaps more dependent on other things like manufacturing and so on, um, yeah, you wouldn't, wouldn't have that, uh, that sometimes distortion. But you know, in Edinburgh, where I come from, the financial sector, indeed Scotland generally, the financial services sector is about the same percent of Scottish GDP as it is nationally. Uh, and uh, which is why I make the point that where we are good at something, and I think the business sector and the financial sector are very difficult to break up because I think to a large extent they are dependent, they're dependent on, on each other. Uh, that's why I feel very strongly that, you know, yes, you need to put our house in order there, but we, we must not give it away because otherwise, you know, where, where, where does that leave you? Um, uh, and one of the reasons, it wasn't the only reason, of course, uh, that uh, we... Uh, dealt with Northern Rock in the way that we were was I was very struck by the fact uh, that you know Northern Rock is the biggest private sector employer in an area which is desperate needs more private sector investment. I'm glad now that it's coming through this and you know the present government uh, is uh, thinking about selling it and if I can make a political point I do remember them saying when they were opposing the nationalisation that we'd be stuck with it, with it for years and we'd never get rid of it so it is nice that only three years later they're talking about um, returning it to the, the private sector where I hope it will, I hope it will, will uh, do well. Um, coming back to, to Peter's point earlier, I, mean, I won't go into the, you know, the, 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 the history of it too much. Uh, I, about a month ago I was uh, in the banks of the River Clyde uh, and uh, I was looking at a stretch of the Clyde which even I as a child can remember was shipyard after shipyard after shipyard which is now uh, Lovely grassy front with a lot of houses built up in the 80s and uh, 1990s. Uh, IBM and Greenock has been and gone. Um, you know, we're, we're not going to go back to those days. But what we can do is where we do, as I said, where we've got some advantage, uh, then I think we need to exploit that because get, by getting the same critical mass in other industries as we have in the financial services industry, then that is, that is the only way that I think we're going to, to, we're going to start to see some development of those sectors. I mean, John was mentioning the creative industries. And Dundee, for example, uh, uh, you know, Dundee's a city was built on jam and jute. Now, there's a bit of jam left, but there's no jute. Uh, but it's actually... Still the Beano. Still the Beano. Still, <laughs> I was, uh, as my wife was, uh, started her working life in D.C. Thompson's, so <laughs> met the editor of the Beano once. Who, you know, there was one, but there is one. Um, <laughs> but in, in that city, the, you know, the creative industries, and particularly in the computer technology, they're doing extraordinarily well, which is what I, I, in my last budget I did, I gave them a slight tax advantage, as the Canadians and the French are doing. The present government has got rid of it, and the French and the Canadians are going to capitalise on that. So, you know, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm philosophically, I'm not against sort of widespread subsidies and so on, but I think there is a case, rather like we do in aviation, for example, with Airbus, which now employs 100,000 people in this country. If you get your critical mass, then industries feed off that. And I think that's a far better approach than somehow thinking that we can erect a large enough barrier or only give um, contracts to British-based companies, uh, then that's the way forward. But I think there are things government can do, which is, comes back to the point both of us are making. You do need an industrial strategy. Thank you. Uh, Derek Wyatt, recovering politician. Um, 
I think, Richard, you gave a, a very brief history of industrial policy since the war, but I didn't quite hear the history of banking. Would it be fair to say that until the Reagan-Thatcherite uh, changes, that bankers actually had, to, so the board of a bank in New York or London, uh, the risk was on their personal wealth? And then once that changed and Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan all broke out and floated, there's actually no risk whatsoever now in any major banking system by the, share, by the senior board members. Sophie Gunter, business development consultant. Um, I want to ask a question about time cycles, business cycle, news cycle, and political cycle. Richard mentioned somebody in France who spent his entire life being an expert in Airbus. As you mentioned your time in transport, not quite making a record, I believe it was transport. The news cycle today is an hour. The Murdoch has taken off Greece pretty much off the news. I mean, it's all about what's going on with one company. It just seems that there is a, a disconnect between what the media is demanding, what the, the economics of the country requires in order to make long-term vision and investment, and what people have to do to be elected. Thank you very much. And yes, just thinking about Alistair's book title, my mind, I, piece of paper here, constantly going around the darling buds of May and coming out with all kinds of crazy permutations. <laughs> but that, that put me into a cultural frame of mind, and so I've come up with Neighbours as one of our <laughs> most uh, sophisticated products from our creative, Australian creative industries. A question for Alistair. If you could, Alistair, go back... Uh, to May 2007, um, what had you learned by, the, by three years later? What would you have done differently? Or if, if that's too sensitive to, to talk about, I can't quite think why it would be, but if it is, um, which chancellor, as you went up uh, 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 the, the, the stairs in number 11, you walked past all those images of chancellors, former chancellors, which chancellor apart from yourself might have done an even better job handling uh, the peculiar circumstances, the really extraordinary circumstances you had as chancellor from 2007, 2010? <laughs> <laughs> I think this is a, Anthony probably knows, a virtually impossible question to... Uh, to ask, each, each chancellor has to deal with the circumstances in uh, which they find, and I suspect the only common feature is every single chancellor wishes they hadn't been faced with a particular set of circumstances they're confronted with. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, as you know, things were going absolutely fine where I was appointed. Uh, <laughs> it's just a shame that it, they took a turn for the worse um, shortly down the road, but there you are. Uh, like everything else, uh, you just have to deal with it. And similarly with your 24-hour news cycle, uh, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. It's there, and it's not. It's it, and you know, even in the last what five or six years, uh, you know, it's increasingly obvious now. News is no longer controlled by institutions, even Mr. Murdoch, because people can now uh, make their own news, and you can you can create you can create a, a tide, if you like, or a, a movement, you know, very very quickly, and that is a fact of life. And you know, you, you know, it, it, it's just one of these things that we have to live with, and. You know, we are now moving to fixed-term uh, parliaments. Uh, I personally think five years is a hell of a long time for one government, and particularly this one. But I'm sure others would say if, uh, if we had that. But you know, that, that's where we are. I, I think that actually, you know, I, I don't subscribe to this view that um, you know, if you if you're a politician and you keep doing things you think are going to be popular, you're going to be re-elected. I think the public are more intelligent than that. 
and that you know that certainly we're talking about industry. Richard and I have been talking about trends over the last 30, 40 years. And really, when it comes to our industrial future, we should be asking ourselves, where do we want to be in 30, 40 years' time? Or if you want it in the personal, what do you want for your children or your grandchildren? Because if we don't get that right now, then it's going to be very, very wrong for them, which is why you know, I happen to think that uh, you know, a degree of uh, you know, taking stock of where we are, I think it does need a, ch a change in tack, and as much from my party as it from the present government, into thinking what a government can do uh, to make a difference. Uh, and that, I think, means that the government is going to have to play a more, more active role doing things that the private companies or individuals either can't do or they won't do. Uh, not just, you know, the classic market failure, which, you know, surely if anyone doubted the value of government, you know, it, it was in the last three years. But if we don't do that, then I do worry about the future. Uh, because if we stand by and hope for the best and hope something will turn up, uh, then, you know, I think, you know, we're going to be in a very difficult position uh, completely, uh, that, that is completely avoidable. That's the first point. Someone asked yeah. on, on the Derek's point, yeah. Um, uh, you know, on, on, on the banks and so on, yeah, I, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, well, I, I don't think I'm going to add to what, very much to what I said earlier. Uh, I, I, you know, I think that, you know, there, were, there were individuals at fault, whether or not if you were to say you were going to make them personally liable or not, or more, you know, the heavy financial burden or not, I'm not sure whether that, that, that would actually make much of a difference. Um, I think part of, I'm more bothered about getting people of the right calibre to sit in board, uh, boardrooms who are not afraid to ask questions. And it can be very difficult sometimes taking on your boss. Oh, really? <laughs> uh. <laughs> do, you, do you want to elaborate on that? <laughs> so should I pass over nope. to Richard to talk about risk and banks? Well, I think that obviously you're right um, uh, that uh, investment banks, uh, once they had uh, uh, public shareholders, started to behave in a completely different way from that which they'd behaved before. Um, but it's not right to say that the commercial banks, did, well, the, you know, the commercial banks, but they, were, what they, they, they had a massive culture change, but it wasn't so much for that reason. Uh, you know, up until 1980, uh, the big clearing banks were essentially cartelized. Uh, again, um, they, um, they had hidden reserves. Uh, the general manager would stand up during the board meeting because he had, always a he, had, um, you know, uh, been working as a centre branch manager and the board, made entirely of toffs, uh, would, um, uh, you know, discuss uh, in a lofty way what was going on. Um, they were utilities, is what they were. Um, and they made utility-like returns and usually, and then every now and again they'd lose their shirts. Uh, but that's what they were. And what has, now, what has changed is that because in the last uh, 10 or 15 years, uh, banks have been used to making non-utility returns, um, I think that's partly where the problem arises. And there's a brilliant chart, sing the single best chart I've seen in the last uh, 18 months was by Andy Haldane in the Bank of England, who produced a chart showing the returns on the banking sector compared to, I don't know if I ever saw it, but compared to um, the rest of industry uh, since 1900. And over that period, it's flat as a pancake till 1985. Yeah, I mean, moving exactly in line with industry as a whole. Then it goes whoosh right off the top of the chart, and then it disappears off the bottom of the chart. I mean, something happened in that, in that period, I think. Do you have any comments on this question about business time cycles and political time cycles? I think that... Um, I, I, I'm not so anxious about it in this context. I mean, I think the, 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 the time cycles do affect 
the debate. You know, for example, uh, I think the Bombardier thing is jolly interesting, um, very interesting, and I won't embarrass the two. Um, I'm not actually embarrassed them. Uh, you know, would they, what decision would they have taken? But I think it's actually a serious and challenging question. You know, because um, I think it's absurd and unforgivable. Well, unforgivable. That's a pompous thing to say. But I think you know, to say this all because of European Union, I think that's complete. You know, that's a real cop out. It seems to me. Um, and the question that I would like to see discussed and you know analysed is: Is Bombardier capable of making uh, competitive equipment? And if it is. <coughs> why didn't it get the contract and if it isn't should government be doing something to assist it to become efficient and capable or should it just say no forget it let it let's go to Siemens who we know make jolly good trains uh, uh, that sort of debate I don't think I've read anywhere because it's just you know oh, here here's the government made a terrible cock up what a, what a shame I think it's a really interesting question which hasn't really been discussed uh, I'm happy to an answer that question in due course but let me take <laughs> well I remember asking you about it about a year ago actually I see Finch Two questions. Um, one, why is it, do you think, that government tends to get, end up associated with some of the lowest quality people in business? Appointing them, and uh, this is not about Labour or Conservative, both parties do the same. They always end up with the really lowest quality, if not crooked, business people. Uh, and and if the second part of the equation, the other way round, is that why is it that business is so lazy most of them, they're all looking to government for some little angle and advantage and, and constantly expecting that if they ask and whinge long enough they'll get it. Uh, while you're thinking about the answers to those two questions, Dermot? Uh, I'm Dermot Finch, I'm Head of Public Affairs at, at Fishburne Hedges. Um, Richard, Alistair, you both talked about the need for government to be more active. Uh, if anything, the consensus over the last year has shifted to a kind of, could government get out of the way, please? Could there be a sort of smaller state, you know, get the deficit down and all the rest of it? Um, what would you be doing if you were both now Chancellor and head of the CBI um, to sort of recalibrate a relationship between government and business that was more active on the government side? So what is it that you two would be doing now that sort of, makes that more activist role a reality. Thank you. And then at the, at the far, far back. Peter York, I think. Uh, we're, we're talking a very rational way is about a relationship that isn't very rational. And I think people of good, men of goodwill who want to make the relationship between business and government more rational, more cooperative in the terms you've talked about, have a fight on their hands. And the fight that they've got on their hands, I think, unacknowledged, is with the wilder shores, the sort of rabid rhetoric of market populism. And people think, oh, well, that's, you know, that's the Tea Party. Mm. We can push that to one side. It's not in our lovely rational discourse. Yeah. But it is, you know, it is part of America's current jittery problems about how they're going to cure their economy. You know, that brinkmanship comes out of that rhetoric. And it's a very particular to the Anglosphere. There's been 30 years of it. And nice, rational, cooperative people are always on the back foot. You know, at the point that's been made earlier about um, governments of all colors taking on the worst most slipshod, most self-publicizing, self-branding kind of businessmen because they feel on the back foot about it. 
They've, they're the victims of that rhetoric as well. What are you going to do about that? That's the real fight. Richard, should um, politicians consult with a better class of business person? Is <laughs> <laughs> it higher than me? I think you've got. Um, well, I think that. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that it is. Uh, I, I suppose. <laughs> hesitating a little here. Uh, um, I think that uh, politicians live in a bubble and are surprisingly ill informed uh, in some cases about uh, the qualities of particular business persons. And. Um, because they've no experience of them and they don't ask the right questions. I mean, it's uh, interesting, uh, in a completely different context, it's interesting that uh, uh, Mr Cameron took the risk of hiring Mr Coulson, oh, what his name is, uh, you know, thing about. Um, I think that's, um, you know, strange, but it's because these things happen, I think, if you're living in a bubble and you don't, uh, and you haven't got a, somebody coming around and saying, you know, uh, be careful. Uh, Should have got a former editor of the FT, of course, and his <laughs> problems will be over. Yeah. Uh, the question about why do business people go on whinging, why shouldn't they go on whinging? I mean, why shouldn't they be trying to get some kind of competitive advantage? If they think that whinging will get it, go for it, I say. Whinge away. Um, so I'm not sure about that. Well, uh, we just heard um, Alice saying rather movingly uh, that uh, he felt it was a jolly good idea to give an encouragement uh, to the electronic uh, industries of... Um, uh, 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 of Dundee, uh, and what a shame it wasn't. Uh, it was that the present government had taken it away. I mean, this is essentially the question we're discussing: is do, do we need some kind of strategy to support particular industries? Um, and I think the question, the answer to the question, what would one do if one was um, uh, running the place? I mean, I think I would, and I don't agree that a smaller state necessarily means. Um, that the government is, uh, has, has less of a part to play in this. I don't agree with that at all. Uh, I think were, were you in charge, you would want to say, well, first of all, have we got the supply side right? It's what can we do on the supply side to make things uh, better? You know, what can we do in terms of training, apprenticeships, investment, cap investment in human and capital infrastructure? And then the other thing I would say is, uh, you know, um, I would want to do everything I can to encourage and support medium-sized growth companies who create jobs. And that's all the jobs in the country, in the economy, more or less, are created in a, by medium-sized companies who have the capacity to grow. Uh, and they're found all over the place. They're not just in high-tech or creative. They're, you know, you've got, it's innovation and entrepreneurial leadership that makes the difference. And I would, if I was in charge, I would be trying to think of ways for helping uh, those sorts of firms uh, to expand and, and, and take on on jobs. Um, as, as, as for Peter's comment, which I, I, I completely recognise what you say, but again, I'm a bit more optimistic. I mean, for example, um, I was, it, it, I was, and am impressed by the way, for example, in the UK, uh, British uh, firms, or not just British firms, firms operating in the UK, have responded to the climate change discussion, which is very unlike uh, the way they have in the United States. I mean, if you go to the National Association of Manufacturers and say, do you think it's a good idea to reduce greenhouse gas emissions? They throw you out of the window. I mean, it's happened to me. Um, whereas uh, firms here, by and large, including energy-intensive uh, ones, although they've argued about the terms and conditions uh, and, have said, and have sought particular advantage for themselves, because why wouldn't they, uh, have actually uh, accepted the idea that here is a genuine business risk they're not scientists, they're not environmentalists, they are paid to manage risk, and if there's a risk here, 
and an opportunity, they should do something about it. And I find that rather impressive. Thanks. Alistair, too much uh, whinging from low-class spivs and not enough serious, serious strategy? <laughs> you know, if, you, if you're in government, you know, you have to deal with lots of people uh, in business who you wouldn't normally invite <laughs> around for tea, you know? <laughs> it's, it, it's, you know it, it, you take the present debate uh, about the media, you know, whatever happens with the Murdoch empire, uh, I doubt if we'll ever have a situation where you'll ever get any politician who isn't going to talk to editors of newspapers, or whoever they happen to be. You know, I've got a whole lot of emails from my constituents saying, why don't you boycott all the Murdoch titles and so on? And I wrote back to one and said, okay, so who do you want me to speak to? You know, the Daily Mail? Mail on Sunday? What about that? You know, you just have to deal with the, with, 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 uh, the, the people there are. You just have to be careful, though. Uh, that uh, you know, you 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 listen to people when they want things for their industry or they want things for, for themselves. At the end of the day, you have to use your judgment. You know, it's not a question of favours. You have to decide what you think is right. But I think the the idea that if you if everybody, um, you know, in politics stayed on one side of the room and everybody in the business on the other side of the room and you never met, it wouldn't work. You just subcontract the the contacts, wouldn't yeah, yeah. you? know, yeah, there the there can be bad appointments and there can be you know. Good appointments, uh, you know, you know, and you know, I can't think of any way of legislating to make, make sure that doesn't happen. It is at the end of the day for the judgment of the person making the appointment as to whether or not that person is the right and the appropriate person to do it. And you know, you will make mistakes from time to time. Uh, you know, and sometimes you'll appoint someone with a, the best will in the world and discover a bit down the line there was something about them you didn't know. Uh, you know, the, I'm afraid you know that is the way of things. But coming back to um, you know, Dermot's point, and it's also a wider point that we keep coming back to, uh, there's two things up here. One is, I mean, you mentioned the American, he's uh, got to some extent, you know, the big state, small state argument, you know, which frankly, uh, you know, I think is, is simply cover uh, for people's particular prejudices is what the state ought to be doing. Because you find many of the people in the United States who like a small state don't actually mind the American state having, you know, putting massive amounts into the defense industry, for example, or into other industries that, that, ha that happen to suit them. And there are many of the, uh, you know, the Republican senators are only too happy to see state money spent in their state, uh, spent on things they want, but maybe they don't like payments on welfare or, you know, or, or, or social security payments or whatever. And, you know, of course there are people around, and, you know, I think it, it's probably the view of uh, my successor that, who takes the view generally that if the state does less then that frees up money for the private sector to do other things. Well, I understand that general theory. All I'd say is it doesn't work like that in practice. You actually do need uh, a, a state that does things that only the state can do to work with the private sector. I mean, it, is a, it is a mixed economy in every sense. Uh, and you know, I th you know, just as you know, there is a consensus, for example, on health care, that it's something that probably the only, only the state can do, but there's other things, public services, that don't need necessarily to be provided uh, by the public sector. So with the, you know, as, as far as industrial policy is concerned, there's some things the government can do, there's some things that can't. Come back to your Bombardier point, that's maybe a case in point. Bombardier is not a British company. You know, it is a Canadian company. And I know in the four years when, you know, I also had to order trains, part of the problem was that, you know, that, uh, you know, Bombardier, they employed lots of people in Derby, but, you know, Siemens and others sometimes offered a better deal in terms of the trains and the maintenance. The key is, surely, is if, 
next time you're awarding a contract to a company like um, Siemens, as I think uh, was the case when you ordered the high-speed trains, is although we're Japanese, the deal was they were going to get built and more development work was being done in this country. And the hope, therefore, is off that you can then spin something else off. So you've got a decent... Um, a competition to supply uh, uh, railway vehicles. So, you know, I think there are things that government can do. Uh, I certainly don't think just because you can possibly pursue the policy that because someone happens to be based in British that you give them the contract willy-nilly. Uh, you know, that, that, that way you will end up with all sorts of problems. But, but I do think uh, that there's one other thing which I think is important. What would I do to help? One of the best things to help, especially small businesses, but businesses generally, is to create an environment where they think there's going to be a market for them to sell their goods and services. And that is why I believe that the present government's policy of cutting the deficit at the rate they're doing runs the risk of derailing the recovery. I don't think there'll be a double dip, uh, dip, uh, uh, recession. There might technically uh, you, you see how you might get there. I don't think there will be. I think the bigger risk is that we're going to bump along the bottom for maybe five or ten years, and that really will be damaging to innovation uh, and business investment, which will have a knock-on effect in terms of the research and development we do and therefore the employment prospects of the future. And the two things go together. We've been talking about direct intervention, but if you've got the wrong overall economic framework, which is where we're heading at the moment, and you know, if you couple that with Europe heading the Eurozone, heading the way it's going, and with all the problems the bank's going to have and uh, deleveraging with the, the increased regulatory burdens, that's a hell of a heady brew. Uh, that we are going to have to cope with collectively and I think a lot of small businesses looking at the newspapers, looking at the prospects may well be forgiven for thinking well I'm just going to batten down the hatches just now and I think that would be a big big mistake the overall macroeconomic framework is very very important uh, when you're talking about all these things and that is the risk and that's the big difference between me and my successor. Shall I take one final round? Stephen Stone. Thank you, I, I was very struck um, uh, Mr. Darling, you, you seem to have asked yourself in the privacy of your office in DTI the same question that I think Nick Ridley asked on arriving in the same department some 10 or 15 years earlier, when, which he, when he said out loud, what are you all here for? What are you doing? Um, which led, I think, Gordon Brown at the time, who was shadowing him, to say <coughs> Ridley had not said to Mrs. Thatcher, give me the department and I will finish the job. He had said, give me the job and I will finish the department. Um, but the words industrial policy are quite stirring in a way, and you look at deindustrialization in the north and the social problems we have in, in those heartlands, and you think that, yes, an, a coherent, effective industrial policy would be a good thing, but is it going to come from DTI? I think Vince Cable seemed to think that DTI could be a lot smaller than it is. Is it something for the CBI to engage on more energetically? Where is this great industrial policy going to come from? Um, you both mentioned the creative industries and their importance in the economic recovery. Um, whilst they're made up partly of big businesses like music and advertising, and then heavily subsidised sectors which have a lot to do with government, say theatre and the visual arts. Um, some creative industries such as craft are made up almost exclusively of very, very small businesses and sole traders and freelancers. How can um, those very small businesses have influence over uh, government and policy? Um, Alice Sherwood, picking up both on Stefan's point and on what Richard said about politicians living in a bubble, uh, we're in the Institute for Government. How do, in your experience, good ideas get into government and what might you do to improve it? Yeah, uh, David Smith, Sunday Times. Um, I just uh, wondered uh, for Richard whether there was a kind of um, lurch in your, you know, you weren't at the CBI for long before the crisis, but um, before the crisis, I'm sure most of the 
most of your arguments were about smaller government and less regulation. Three months into the crisis, you were talking about the government having allowed Britain to turn into a banana republic for not doing enough to uh, rescue the banking system. Um, to what extent do you accept some blame on the part of business for pushing too hard a line on deregulation, on small government, and so on? And, I, and for, for both of you, um, you know, we've got a situation now where um, two banks are, uh, well, maybe still your four banks are still in the, uh, in the public sector. Uh, I mean, if the world has changed, um, why, not, uh, why not stick with that? I mean, if uh, you know, we've got a problem about not enough credit going into the economy, uh, RBS is 84% owned by the taxpayer, why not keep it as a state bank and, and lend into the economy through RBS? Uh, I mean, what, why, we, why do we want to re-establish the status quo? Well, some big issues there. Uh, what should, how should we get this industrial policy that uh, we're all agreeing that we need but uh, uh, we don't appear to have at the moment? How do good ideas get into government? And uh, I took the uh, other question to be how do you suddenly change your tune when you're two or three months into a job and you realise that everything you've been saying before isn't necessarily valid? <laughs> you've had plenty uh, of practice. Should <laughs> <laughs> you want to kick up? Yeah. Uh, well, I think that... Um, where, where does investment, where does industrial policy come from? It has to, I mean, I think one of the interesting stories of the last um, uh, 15 years is the way in which the power and role of the Treasury has changed, um, particularly under your predecessor. Um, uh, up until 97, all the smart people in the Treasury did monetary policy and left uh, expenditure and the rest to... Um, uh, below, you know, below the salt, and then uh, monetary policy went away, and all the clever people decided that they were going to do um, uh, everything else. And, and uh, because there was a very powerful chancellor, they also decided they were going to run the country. And I think there is actually another debate to be had here about the way the role of the treasury changed uh, 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 over that period. I think um, that uh, I think uh, if one looks at the model of Germany and France, as I'm sure you're going to do after my impassioned plea. Uh, I think there are lessons to be learned there about where industrial policy is formed, and it needs to be uh, in a department of business, a ministry of econ economics, call it whatever you like, uh, which uh, w that the, tr that the treasury is, is responsible for getting in the cash and making sure that the budget balances, um, and there is a ministry for economics which um, thinks about things like, um, you know, do we want um, a power generating industry in this country? Do we need one, and if so? What are the constituents going to be? Where are we? How are we going to get the skills? How are we going to get the infrastructure in place and things like that? We need. I think. I think that would be an attractive thing to have, and that that's where it should belong. And there should be people in it whose job it is to care about that and go on caring about it. And you know, there would be permanent secretaries who were in there for long enough to understand the issues and get on with it. So that's my answer to that question. I think. What What about small craftspeople and how do they get helped by government? I think the answer for that is macro step stability first and foremost, and credit, uh, a functioning credit system which we haven't had for a bit. Um, so I think that's that's important. I think on the um, on David's uh, unkind uh, question, um, uh, of course, um, I think that. Uh, Actually, on the Banana Republic thing, all I said about that was um, I never thought I'd see a bank run in my life. And I remember talking to you on that day, and uh, I think you said, do you really want to say Banana Republic? And I said, yes, I do. Anyway, so that's, that's a mistake. Uh, but um, uh, I, I did never expect to see a bank run in the United Kingdom. I couldn't imagine. Uh, I couldn't imagine that beforehand. And that's a failure of imagination on my part. And, um, and clearly, with hindsight, 
uh, one can, and, and uh, I, I'm, I'm sure not in your case, but many economic journalists didn't completely see what was coming and changed in some ways uh, their uh, arguments. I certainly did. I didn't, I didn't imagine a catastrophe like this. I could see that risk was being underpriced. I could see that uh, um, a leverage in the system was growing. I could see that debt in the household sector and the government sector was exploding, but I couldn't imagine what happened. I just didn't imagine it. And I don't think, though, that that's an argument for saying we should become like China and have state banks um, that uh, lend uh, to suit um, the wish of the political leadership. And I, don't, I certainly feel strongly that it would be a serious mistake uh, to keep one of these big banks in the public sector any longer than was necessary. But I do think that um, we should be thinking hard about um, the structure and shape of the credit system more generally. I was very struck by the arguments that, again, another person at the MPC, Adam Posen, put forward a year or so ago, where he said, uh, we lack a spare tire in our business um, credit scene because there's no commercial paper market apart from very large companies. There's only, there's only you know, the small, medium-sized firms rely, have, have to rely on heavily on overdraft from a few small companies. I think that's a serious question that could be addressed. And I also think that an infrastructure bank um, has a lot to be said for it, and we will need one if we're going to get um, investment on the scale we need in our power generating capacity over the next years, because the political risk of investing in a big um, power generating plant, I think, is probably too high for the private sector to take on. So I'm, I'm in favour of a green investment bank, um, but I don't think that's the same as being in favour of um, Alastair or his successors being in charge of the Royal Bank of Scotland. That's a uh, that's very, very frank answer, Richard. Thank you very much. Just, uh, Alastair, to inject another sort of slightly sharper edge to the, 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 the last question. In Germany, since 1949, there have been 15 ministers for economics and industry. In Britain, since 1949, there have been 35 secretaries of state for trade and industry or the equivalent. Uh, is that the cause or the effect of not having an industrial policy? Is, it's a, a, a question I ponder myself. When we look at <coughs> infrastructure, you and I have wrestled in, uh, uh, in, uh, in transport with uh, this, this big problem about equipping Britain with a decent transport infrastructure. 36 secretaries of state for transport or equivalents since, uh, uh, since the war, half of whom have served a year or less. It's you and Ernest Marples. Now, Ernest Marples is a great and interesting character. He did indeed build the motorway system, uh, largely. He was in person for five years. He ended up as a tax exile in Monaco, fleeing from the Inland Revenue <laughs> at 24 hours' notice. And, of course, his background had been... He's one of these spivs we were hearing about earlier. His background had been as, uh, 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 in his own private company, Marple Ridgeway, which uh, got a large proportion of the contracts to build the said. <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily the ideal relationship you want between uh, between business and politics. Do we? It, it does seem to me when I look at these other countries, but maybe it's rose-tinted. And I certainly accept as something that the Institute for Government should look at. It's not so much that there's a better relationship. There seems to be within the civil service and the political class at large a deeper commitment to an understanding of fundamental national interests when it comes to industries, infrastructure and so on than we have here. And I think part of the reason may just be this, the extraordinarily transient nature of, uh, of so many politicians who are, who are responsible for these, these, um, 
these great decisions, but I say that without any, without any profound conviction, because we have very great stability in the office of Chancellor of the Exchequer, if you look at it historically, which doesn't change so frequently, and we have pretty uh, considerable stability in the office of Prime Minister, and they're the two which, after all, uh, matter most. So any reflections you've got on uh, this reshuffle culture and the impact that that has? Well, I'm not... When, when, I, when, when I was looking, as one does, at you know, longevity of transport ministers, uh, it so happens my father was a civil engineer, so that's why I knew about Marples Ridgeway. Uh, but it did strike me that Mr Marples would have had a hell of a job with the Register of Members' Interests. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and the current climate may not have managed to serve anything like the four years that he did. Uh, but uh, there you are. Um, I, I think that I make a general observation. Uh, I do think that ministers change far too much in government. And, and that's partly because most prime ministers, when T Tony's case was never in any department, Gordon was in one. Uh, I think Margaret Thatcher was the Secretary of State for Education and I think she had one or two junior posts. Uh, but it is, it's very tempting to reshuffle the pack every now and again, not because of it's good for that department, but because you're trying to make a broader political statement. And the junior ministers, you know, some of my colleagues, you know, were never in a department for more than nine or ten months. And in my experience, it takes you about a year to discover what the, what the problem is, about a year to put it right, a year to make sure what you were putting right hasn't been undone. Uh, and, you know, if you're lucky, you get a fourth year, but, you know, most people don't. And it, 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 departments, if you don't, if there isn't a political leadership, uh, you know, they will certainly, they'll carry on with a departmental ethos, wherever that happens to be, at best. At worst, they'll just mark time waiting for the next one to turn up. However... I think that the broader point, you know, in terms of what your industrial policy is, or your transport policy, or education policy, that tends to come from the top, uh, as, as often, uh, more often than coming from the particular Secretary of State who's been sent there to execute the Prime Minister's policy. And I suspect in modern politics that's likely to continue because the character of the Prime Minister is usually so dominant of government. Uh, you know, perhaps it's time to you know, revisit the question of first amongst equals because you know, the, you know, the, the, the Prime Minister has become much more uh, dominant. Uh, and, but I think, I think the, pr the problem, therefore, has not been such a... It's not, I don't think it's a personnel problem. Uh, I think it's coming out to this point, we have been ambivalent about so many of key policies, edu whether it's education policy, industrial policy, uh, you know, from time to time on, uh, you know, on health, health policy and so on, that has been causing the problem. Whereas I think in some of the other countries, uh, you know, this is not an argument for the civil, staking, civil service taking over. The continental model tends to be the civil service tend to set the policy and the ministers react to it. That's one of my complaints about the European Union. That's how it operates. But you know, whatever the policy is, they tend to hold on to it for a fairly long time. Uh, but I certainly don't think chopping and changing uh, changes. Uh, I think I just wanted to comment on, on David's points uh, about, about the banks. Um, uh, I think that if the government wants to make uh, sure there is sufficient money in the economy, especially for the big things, infrastructure projects, uh, it, it, it should do it directly, which is why the, I think the last budget I set up the investment bank, which was abolished the next month and has now been reinvented again. It's called something different, but it's the same money. Uh, it's coming from this, initially from the sale of the Channel Tunnel uh, rail link. And I, I, uh, you know, I, I agree with uh, Richard. We are not going to be able to replace our uh, energy infrastructure unless two things happen. One, if you've got a planning regime that actually works, and I'm not at all sure we've got one of those just now, because uh, we're way behind where we need to be. 
And secondly, you know, whether you like it or not, one way or another, uh, large-scale power plants are not going to get built in the current climate uh, unless um, the state plays some part in it. Uh, and, and given that, you know, if we really don't want the lights to go off sometime in the following decade, we're going to do something about that. Uh, equally, I mean, in, take railways. I mean, in the private sector is never going to build a, a railway. You can kid yourselves that the, you know, you can put out the badge on the front of it, but you know, the state is going to have to pay quite a big, a big role there. I think the problem with if you run a bank like RBS is, is the problem that what ministers can't make individual decisions vis-a-vis -vis, you know the hundreds of thousands of uh, businesses that come to banks every day you know one of the complaints about you know the, the beginning of the banking crisis that like northern rock was lending money to people who should never have been given mortgages now we can't take those decisions as ministers and you can issue guidelines if you like to the banks and so on but i, I don't think that'll work what i think is is important though is that we have a proper competitive banking market which we don't have at the present time it looks more like the electricity utilities than it does you know a normal competitive market but we regulate it differently we don't regulate it um, you know if you look at the, the retail market and anything like the same way uh, and that's why you know I hope that Vickers in his final report has rather more to say about competition than he had you know, in his, his earlier report, which was almost, to me, uh, like uh, an, after, an afterthought, because if you don't get that, it won't work. But I mean, the, the state deciding who it's going to lend to, you're, you're on a hiding to nothing. I know that an MP, you know, when, when we took over RBS, the inevitable happened. My surgery started filling up with business people uh, who'd been denied loans from the bank. And, you know, half of them, you can persuade the bank to look again at it. The other half, you, you know, you can say, well, you know, I, I can maybe see the bank's got a point. Um, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll never forget one guy coming to see me, and, you know, he had a, a, a very, you know, a very heart-rending story to tell, and he came with his accountant. And the two of them, you know, we, I said I'd do it, did. He went out, the accountant came back and said, do you know he's bust? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, I can't take those decisions. So I think it's better, that we, we do, but we do need to have a more competitive um, banking industry that we've got in the present time, and we just don't have that. The state does have a role to play, but it, it's at a much higher level. Well, that was a really, really good discussion. I think the conclusion of it is wanted industrial strategy without spivs and with, <laughs> and, and, and with real consistency and purpose uh, of uh, political leadership, and uh, I think the IFG needs to try and work out how we're going to do that in our next joint event with the... Uh, Editorial Intelligence will be focused clearly on that goal. We look forward to seeing you all again then. But meanwhile, thank you very much to Richard. Thank you very much to Alice. It was a really... <laughs>